Welcome to the official Sasta podcast from the main man at Sasta and the godfather of Sass, Jason Lampkin, at JasonLK on Twitter, and from me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC, who you can add on Snapchat at HStebbings. Now, joining me today, I'm thrilled to welcome a very good friend of mine and a leading Sass investor. So, joining me in the hot seat today, I'm thrilled to welcome Cindy Padnos, founder and managing partner at Illuminate Ventures, where she focuses on all things enterprise, B2B cloud, and mobile computing sectors, and prior to founding Illuminate in 2009, Cindy was one of three investment professionals at Outlook Ventures, responsible for committing the firm's $140 million fund. However, how can we forget her amazing success in the world of operations, where she founded and sold one of SaaS's first on-demand startups in the form of Vivant, and I also have to say a quick thank you to Brad Feld for making the introduction to Cindy today, without which this interview, of course, would not have been possible, so thank you so much, Brad. Brad. However, my praise for Cindy could go on forever, so for the sake of time and allowing her to explain far better than I have, I'm delighted to welcome Cindy Padnos at Illuminate Ventures. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Cindy, my word, this has been far too long in the coming, but I'm so delighted to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. Now talk to me, Cindy. I want to start off with you and how you made your way into the world of of early stage tech and and, and SaaS investing. Uh, Well, it's a crazy convoluted route, I would say. You know, people, I have uh, friends and others who ask me all the time how I got to do what I do, and because I feel like I'm the luckiest person in the world. Um, And I guess they must think I am too, because they're always wondering how it came about. You know, I started out in the corporate world, um, right out of grad school. I went from there into management consulting, which really helped me to understand how companies are built and how they grow, which was was pretty cool to be able to see uh, that across so many different companies in a short amount of time. And from there, made a really conscious choice to uh, jump into the entrepreneurial world. Uh, I had grown up in a a very entrepreneurial family, a a company that's now been in business uh, for over 100 years and still run by family members, believe it or not, the fourth generation. Um, But I really had fallen in love with the tech industry. I'd I'd done my master's at Carnegie Mellon. I had been really exposed to um, lots of innovations in technology there. And so when I made my way finally to the Bay Area, I became part of a number of uh, startup teams, founding teams, uh, took the company that I founded through M&A to a public company, and then stepped back and said, okay, what do I really want to do next? I have this phenomenal network that I've built over the years. I had this ability, I thought, um, that I'd learned as a consultant to multitask and look at new markets and new technologies all the time. And frankly, I also get bored easily. <laughs> um, I do. And, and so I kind of felt like I, I didn't want to do one thing. And, and I started getting calls from venture capital friends after I uh, sold the company I founded. Um, and it was also a really amazing and interesting uh, time in the markets because all of this happened shortly after 9-11. And the world had changed. And um, many of the VCs were looking for people with operational skills like myself to come and help them with existing portfolio companies or help them with due diligence on new investments. And um, I started doing that. I became um, effectively a venture partner. I worked with uh, many uh, very well-established firms and and terrific partners in those firms 
And, uh, you know, everyone from Benchmark and USVP and uh, Bay Partners and what scale ventures now. And I really, all of a sudden, I mean, it was not intentional, realized that I loved what they were doing and I wanted to do it. But if I was going to do it, it wasn't going to be as a consultant. So that was, that's a long story. But the reality was I moved into venture and uh, loved it. I was with a hundred and $50 million fund at that point, a very traditional Series A firm, and then um, started to see the world shift. And that shift happened because of the public cloud. And it, it became super obvious to me that the world um, wasn't the same and, and that we suddenly, uh, the, the dollars that it had taken me to start my company, which um, was about a million dollars, wasn't needed any longer. You could plunk down your credit card and um, start leveraging cloud computing resources instead of doing what I'd had to do, which is buy servers and database licenses and software development tools. So it, it was a different world. And, and that really was what motivated to me to say, look, I want to start my own firm. And I want to do that in this enterprise category that I've spent my entire career in, um, enterprise software. And that was uh, the launch of Illuminate. So very, very interesting for me here was going into venture and the venture experience when you started everything that you expected it to be. <laughs> uh, I honestly didn't exactly know what to expect it to be. So the, the biggest fear I had, to be honest with you, was would I be comfortable making that transition from entrepreneur seeking capital to a, uh, an investor deploying capital? And what I mean by that is there are, you know, uh, tough conversations that have to happen, you know, tough love, as they say, between an investor and an entrepreneur when you talk about things like founder vesting, um, when you talk about things like key man insurance, uh, when you talk about, you know, a variety of different things, it's sort of on the negotiation upfront side. I'd never done that side of the equation before. Do you think then being in operations is, is you know, often we hear, because there's still a lot of financial backgrounded people in the industry. Do you think having been in operations, you do have a fundamental advantage in respect to founder understanding? Well, I, I think you have a secret weapon and it's your own um, humility. It's the awareness that you have. What people, what, what entrepreneurs do is really hard and requires putting their ego, and sometimes even a lot more than that, financially and otherwise on the line. And the humility of, of having been through the successes and failures, the peaks and valleys of being an entrepreneur, I think tunes you into many things that, that if you haven't had that operating background, um, would be very hard to understand. Now I want I want to discuss a statement that you that you said to me in the past, and it was that SaaS is a democratizer for entrepreneurship, and you spoke about reducing costs there, uh, potentially another democratizer for entrepreneurship. But SaaS democratizing entrepreneurship. Talk to me about this and why you think SaaS has the ability to democratize in this way. Well, I think you know it, it democratizes it when, when you say SaaS. To me, that includes not just uh, subscription revenue models and uh, cloud architectures. It also includes the whole sales and marketing strategies that SaaS companies apply. The the techniques of of using totally inside salespeople or uh, self serve models or you know really uh, viral models to build companies. Those all literally change the economics of building a business. Uh, when I started Illuminate. 
people did not honestly believe that you could build a micro VC in the enterprise software category. They thought simply that enterprise tech, and back then, by the way, it was B2B software, um, they thought that you simply uh, couldn't, the economics wouldn't sustain that and, and that you would, every micro VC that did that would be a washout. Well, we've clearly proven that not to be true. Part of the reason of that is not just the enterprise um, ability to leverage the cloud. It's that the cost of these organizations, these sales organizations and marketing organizations have dramatically changed as well. So what's happened, what I've seen happen is many more individuals, much more globally, not just here in Silicon Valley, have come to understand that. You'll see companies that get started. We're looking at one right now in Poland. We're looking at another in Switzerland. Um, Companies that started with literally a credit card um, and access to the Amazon or, or other cloud that were able to get off the ground without any outside funding at all. And, and frankly, with the founders still working at full-time jobs elsewhere. I, I'm intrigued. Do you, do you see the proliferation of sales and marketing tools as, although a benefit to to the customers and the consumers because they've got a plethora of options, in terms of competing for the same dollars, is is that not a tricky circumstance when it comes to fundraising? It is tricky, and, and it's super interesting. It's an area we've done a lot of homework in. Uh, probably a third of our portfolio is in the areas of sales and marketing optimization. And so we care about it quite a lot. Um, there, interestingly enough, I think are still some white spaces there. Um, we've identified a couple, and please don't ask me what they are because <laughs> we'd like to see one or two companies start there, not 50. <laughs> and and what what is interesting, though, is without a doubt there will be some consolidation in the space. Uh, one of the companies, for example, that um, we invested in because we understood this, um, you know, ongoing proliferation, it's a company called Allocadia. Allocadia is unique in a lot of different ways, um, including that it was founded by identical twin sisters. But uh, they are located in Vancouver. They bootstrapped the company uh, with less than half a million dollars of angel capital to over a million dollars in recurring revenue. So an example of that, you know, democratization, if you will. And what they are doing is they've built a product and a platform that crosses over the top of all of these products. In other words, it's planning, it's budgeting, and it's ROI management across the proliferation of sales and marketing automation tools that any large organization has. We thought that was smart, um, and we thought it looked a lot like you know selling shovels to miners rather than doing the gold mining. And I'm intrigued though, because with the proliferation of these tools, there's also an immense amount of. Uh increasing amount of metrics for SaaS companies uh, and it's moved from from the old one-time licensed enterprise software world to, to now today when we have so much. So I'm intrigued as to what the fundamental changes are for you in this respect and do you think they're good for the ecosystem and do they make your job easier having this plethora of metrics and data available or actually does it make it more complex and, and challenging to navigate through? Oh my God, Harry, I'd love anything that made my job easier <laughs> and anything that made a, a, an entrepreneur's job easier. So look, uh, when I launched my own company, which was a um, services procurement software company, and uh, oh my gosh, a long time ago, I won't even count the years, uh, it was pre-public cloud. And yet we decided to build a multi-tenant architecture, host it at Rackspace and charge for it as a subscription model because I completely believed in the value of the predictability of the revenue stream. 
And and lo and behold, all these years later, that was literally in 1999. All these years later, um, it's proven to be true, and companies are being rewarded for the predictability of the revenue streams in the SaaS model. But um, it does require an entirely different mindset than what worked in the enterprise world. It's, it's that simple. And I think it's completely a positive and a healthy move for, for a couple reasons. First, you know, you have to care deeply about customer satisfaction in the SaaS world. And in the enterprise world, you could sell something and, and practically walk away. There was this term back then that you may never have heard because you didn't, you know, you, you weren't around in those in those early, you know, what was then called enterprise software as well in those years. And literally the term was shelfware. Have you heard of that? Uh, I would love to say yes, but it, is this when you kind of buy CDs of like Windows uh, on a shelf? You just buy a product and never use it or stop using it. And, you know, and literally, of course, as you described, you had to send out your, your, you know, your CDs. People had to install it. Sometimes it never got installed. Even if it got installed, they might stop using it. You never even knew if they stopped using it because it was, you know, on-premise software that you couldn't monitor or anything else. And, and so that world is gone. Thank goodness. I, I think it's the healthiest thing in the world that you uh, with a SaaS revenue stream, customers decide every year, sometimes even more frequently, whether they want to continue using your product or not. It, it keeps um, every company responsible for customer satisfaction, for customer delight. That, to me, is probably going to spur, uh, spur more and more innovation, um, which is which is awesome. I'm intrigued. You said obviously the the importance of predictability of revenue, and absolutely, uh, Aaron Ross wrote a book on it. Obviously, uh, predictable revenue uh, and the importance of it. But with the increasing consumerization of the SaaS environment, do you think we'll see a reduction in the elements of predictable revenue with consumer elements of payments being introduced into the SaaS world? Well, you know, I live in the enterprise SaaS world, which is very different than the world for consumer products. And so should, should I, we clarify then? Because it's often uh, you know, people use SaaS and enterprise uh, very differently because SaaS to me can be kind of almost anything we use is software as a service. More than enterprise is purely for big corporates. Am I right in saying that? I would add a nuance to that. Enterprise is any business. It could be a small business. It could be you and I as individual business owners. It could be any application of technology that's being used by a business to improve business performance. That's the way we look at it, at least at Illuminate. Okay, absolutely. And so do you think we'll see the continuation of predictable revenue in both the SaaS and the enterprise SaaS uh, pricing models? I think um, it will clearly be more predictable than historical one-time license sales were. But interestingly enough, a, a purchase on the consumer side is more likely to look like it always did because they're going to be smaller amounts. They are going to perhaps be monthly or quarterly payments, uh, whereas you know business users are much more likely to prefer to have annual payments and sometimes frequently, in fact, sign up for multi-year agreements. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we spoke about pricing there. I, I have quite a few uh, SaaS founders come to me and, and ask uh, if, they, if they need a cloud product to apply a subscription pricing model to their product. Uh, what do you think of this and, and this um, evaluation of pricing models? So it's, it's super interesting, uh, actually, that you asked, because I was literally just in a meeting 
with a founder yesterday that's built um, a very interesting set of technologies around um, edge computing and edge security. They're working in an environment um, primarily with large utilities that are, uh, you know, really cautious about um, how they deploy technology. And as a result, you know, really don't want anything in the cloud at this point. And so the founder was explaining to me that uh, as a result, they're going to have this, you know, one-time license uh, product revenue model and blah, blah, blah. And we started talking and I, and I kind of challenged him and I said, well, why? And he said, well, because it's a deployed product. And, and I said, but why can't you charge for that as a recurring revenue stream? Why can't it be a subscription? And frankly, it was this very long pause. And he kind of looked at me and said, I, I don't know why we can't do that. That's really interesting. So I, I think there is this assumption that in order to, that like, it's like there's a belief that SaaS is only one thing. And that is so far from the truth. You can leverage various components of a SaaS model in almost any business. And um, I think that's, if you think, of, go back in time, Salesforce. What was so unique about Salesforce? Was it really just that you didn't have to host it yourself? Absolutely not. What opened up the market was the subscription revenue model. They could have sent a CD out and started charging a subscription revenue model, and it still would have dramatically expanded their market. Not as much as the SaaS model did, but just the fact that you could... I mean, now let's really go back in time. Go back to <laughs> this is one neither of us were alive for <laughs> when and uh, you know they started building automobiles and Ford was out there first, but GM shows up and says, "By the way, you don't have to pay for the whole car up front. You can buy it on a pay-as-you-go basis. You can actually." Um, have a lease. You can actually have a loan to buy this car and pay it off over time. I know that sounds stupid now that like, well, geez, that's a no brainer. But believe me, when Salesforce and others like our company, which was called Vivant, started doing this, it was not a no brainer at all. People thought it would fail. Yeah, well, I'm intrigued. Was that the first ever subscription model that would? I, I, I doubt it, but it, it certainly was an early one. And and. People don't think about it, but it dramatically, I mean, it democratized car ownership. And it was a very clear strategy that GM had that allowed them um, to dramatically build market share. Cracking history lesson here. Uh, <laughs> and, and I want to dive into a 60 second SASTA with you. So a quick fire round, 60 seconds per answer. How does that sound? Yeah, oh, well, I, you, you've heard how long I speak. I can try. <laughs> <laughs> So let's start with uh, easier or harder to raise for startups today than in previous years? Harder. I think it's a little bit tougher because you've got a dramatic drop that happened just a year ago in, in SaaS um, pricing in the markets. You've got a lot of startups and you have more cautious investors. Most common problem for your SaaS portfolio companies? I don't think it's just for ours. I think it's for you know many SaaS companies, maybe not all. And it's it's in making the decision when it's time to scale. Do I have really product market fit? Do I really understand now what um, it takes to sell this product and, and through the right channels, whether it's direct or indirect, etc.? So that decision, that tipping point 
on when to put pedal to metal and start scaling is, is really the hardest hardest question. Well, you've just provided me with a question for after 60 seconds because that's too okay. long a question. But but in, in the remainder of this, let's then do your favorite SAS reading material. Oh my God, who has time to read? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Uh, okay, no, no, really. Well, if you do read something, be it a newsletter, blog, um, even a newspaper, what, what's the reading material for you? Uh, honestly, I, I, I don't have that much time to read. I'm, I always take, you know, a quick glance at what's going on in, in Medium and TechCrunch and a number of other, you know, relevant kinds of things. But my, my love of reading is, um, is history. Um, and in particular, history that reflects how we've impacted the world. You know, books like Collapse and 1492 and Galileo's history of, of longitude and, and how that gave us the ability to have um, better navigation at sea. I mean, I love reading those because they, I think, history informs the future. And then the biggest challenge for you in your role today with Illuminate? The biggest challenge with Illuminate? Yeah. What is it? Oh my be it, it, uh, it, it, availability of time, be it uh, whatever it may be. Well, I, I think Illuminate is really, um, it's my startup. Okay. And so I'm still a founder at heart. There's no two ways about it. I'm still an entrepreneur at heart. And so I am always trying to think about how to build a better, long lasting firm and how to better serve entrepreneurs that we work with. So that makes perfect sense. And, and now I'm, I'm just desperate to, to deep dive on this question that you touched on there. Uh, so we're not in 60 seconds, so we can answer properly. But I want, I want to talk about putting the pe- pedal to the metal. Uh, and, and when is the right time when you know you've product, got product market fit? How do you assess this? When's it actually a bit of a misnomer and it, it could be a bit of a falsity? So how do you address this with your companies and with your own company? Well, I think what's really interesting is that as an early stage investor, we see this phase of a business over and over again. And so we're, we're able to really sit back and, and look at what the proof points have been in the past and apply some of that thinking you know, in each scenario, even though, of course, each has you know, some, some number of unique attributes as well. So there are a number of things we look for. One of those is the ability to target customers in a way that you really know uh, very quickly whether or not there's a a fit for that customer. And and that means establishing a set of criteria that makes sense across a pretty broad market set. Um, The other is when you start having people reaching out to you because there has become a, a level of awareness in the market that there's a need for this kind of a product. And not just an evangelism around convincing people that they have a need for it. One or two or three customers, frankly, is um, that's not a sufficient trend line. And, and frequently, entrepreneurs uh, get their first sale and assume that that's that's it. We we figured it out. We've nailed it. Now let's go hire you know five sales reps. And and frequently, those first few sales can be false positives because of what we call entrepreneur heroics. You know, the founders go in and are able to, you know, sell snow to Eskimos, really, because they're so passionate um, about what they've built and so convincing. That's not really what you're looking for. Absolutely. It's very often very difficult for, for founders to imbue that same passion on a on a paid sales team. That's right. 
That's right. Is it repeatable? Is there a really a repeatable sales model here? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Uh, and then another thing I want to touch on with you before we finish is is I often hear about AI, the incumbency advantage. Uh, so talk to me about the incumbency advantage in in the world of SaaS and enterprise SaaS and the opportunity for smaller companies to to actually gain access to to great technologies that let them compete with the bigger players in the industry and how that expands the market opportunity for the operators and the entrepreneurs themselves. Yeah, so I think one of the most phenomenal things about SaaS is that it really does give you access to a really interesting set of data. That data can be leveraged across many different companies, across even different sectors. Uh, An example of that is um, our portfolio company, Exactly. They've now got, oh, I don't know, probably close to a 1,000 customers. They've been in business for 10 years. Uh, They have a data set that has unimaginable value. And it allows them, so exactly as a sales compensation and, and uh, employee performance management uh, SaaS application. Uh, they're used by some of the largest corporations in the world, but also by startups, including many of our own portfolio companies. And those large corporations get no better product, if you will, than the startup. That's really meaningful and no better data. Being able to aggregate that data on an unattributed basis across all of those companies gives exactly the advantage because they can then share all sorts of insights, benchmarking, recommendations back with all of those companies that's that's relevant to them. And I want to finish then on, on the actual investment side of the business and kind of uh, the bread and butter. So so let's finish with that. And I know that you've got quite strong opinions on, on micro VC and the variations between firms. There are, there are a plethora of new micro VC firms, I think you'll agree with me today. So talk to me about that and how you view the the co-investing landscape for you. So plethora would be an understatement. (laughs) Is there too many? I don't know if I know the answer to that. I think there will be consolidation in in the micro VC world. Um, From what I understand, more than half of the funds that are there today are first-time funds. And the average size of a fund is somewhere between uh, $10 and $15 million. That's relatively small. Um, it's where we started, so I don't want to suggest that that's a bad number for a first-time fund. But I think the change has been, you know, when, when we launched Illuminate in 2009, there were under 30. Today, there are hundreds. Back then, the number of first-time funds out of that 30, there were 10. Today, what, a couple of hundred. The average size of a fund back then was probably the same. It was probably around you know, 10 to 15 million. Um, but if you now go and look at it, the number of funds that are 75 to 150 million that still say they're micro VCs, it's more than 30. Uh, and, and I could go on and on. The, the, the other things that I think are really different aren't just about growth. They're about strategy. And there are some um, firms that believe in doing um, what we would call club or party rounds. <laughs> party sounds good, doesn't it? Party sounds great, yeah. But how persistent are they still? I mean, I thought we were, particularly with kind of the realism of unit economics and, and the harsh financial realities of life, uh, that party rounds are over. Are they not over? They are absolutely not over. Um, we don't do them. It's a, it's a strategy we think has a lot of risk to it, both for the investor and the entrepreneur. But the average number of co-investors today in a seed stage round is nine. Um, our average as a firm um, is three. It's, it's very interesting, distinct difference between different firms in the industry. The other is 
many firms believe that you need to have a very large portfolio um, in order to succeed. You know, we actually take a much more concentrated approach. We have, uh, you know, 15 to 20 companies in our entire portfolio, not 15 to 20 investments a year. And, you know, because of that, we have the time and energy to put into actually working with these companies. And and we think in particular in the enterprise space, that's really important. So would you say for founders, actually, it's optimal to have a smaller number of highly focused uh, VCs than the nine, as you said, who are less focused? Does nine not, though, give you the diversity of opinion that might be a benefit? Or is three enough? Well, I've been a founder, and if I had nine people telling me what to do, I think I would have taken a gun to my head. Okay, so, <laughs> so let's just start with diversity of opinion is one thing, but nine people who think that they should tell you what to do would be would be enough would be a nightmare. So I, I think the issue is a, is that a little bit, but I think actually, and because I, I do believe all nine of those people would be well intentioned and want to be helpful, but. The issue is a little different when it comes time to raise the next round of capital. And you may find that actually you need three or six months more runway before it really makes sense to go out and raise the additional capital. You turn around, you're the founder, you look to your nine investors, each of whom have written a $100,000 or less check um, out of their you know, 15 or $20 million fund. And they kind of look at each other and say, well, Uh, unless everybody's stepping up, I'm not stepping up. And many of them may not have reserves. Their their strategy may not include reserving for future rounds. Ours does, but not all do. And what you find is that no one really takes ownership. No one has put enough money in. No one has enough skin in the game to really make sure this company takes that next step forward. Yeah, that's a a very good point. So founders should very much look for those follow-on reserves in potential first investors. Without doubt, yes. Cindy, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I'm so grateful to you for giving up your time today. uh, And and I look very forward to having you on the show again soon, I'm sure. You're awesome, Harry. Thank you for inviting me. I told you Cindy was fantastic and so great to hear her incredible story with Illuminate, which you can learn more from at IlluminateVC on Twitter. And if you're loving all things Sasta, then you can follow me on Snapchat at Stebbings with two Bs, or you can follow Jason Lampkin on Twitter at JasonLK, or you could head to the site at Sasta.com, that's S-A-A-S-T-R.com. As always, we so appreciate the support and cannot wait to bring you an incredible founder on Friday with one of YC's finest alumni, and recently backed by the amazing team at Bessemer, it is, of course, Fred Stephen Smith, co-founder at Rainforest QA.